0: congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him, and argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when one of the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter one, verses four through 11. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: In today's passage, we get to spend a lot of time looking at the power of God's kingdom. This is actually something I've been a little bit obsessed with lately. Um, Some of it comes because I've been um, planning this story of the Bible class that we're going through as a church, which is a time to kind of take a step back and go, this actually isn't a story about me, it's a story of what God has been doing throughout all of time, and God building this kingdom and implementing a kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, and what is that? And how can it be so beautiful and so enticing that people who don't even share the same history, the same story, the same scriptures are drawn into this story, this kingdom. I was just in the Northwoods of Wisconsin teaching a group of 18-year-olds the story of the Bible. And a lot of them came from Christian families. But I kept asking them this question, what is so enticing about the kingdom? That even if you live in an empire like Rome, you're more attracted to God's kingdom than the Roman kingdom. It's, they, they were having a hard time kind of formulating non-Christianese standard phrases um, to come up with that. But this is one of the things that I'd like to pose to you and today for us to start to look at. And we're just gonna get one little sliver and it's going to add into the bigger picture. That is, what is this kingdom What is it that God is doing as he's taking his mission out into the world and it's transforming lives? This is a part of what Vito was talking about last week. If you heard his sermon last week, this this missional movement of God that is transforming lives. So, we are in Acts chapter 19. We're only in the first half, so we're getting just a little snippet. Um, but there's some really amazing things about this passage in that we get to look at different people who are at different levels of preparedness to see what God is doing in the world and to respond. And so, maybe as we read this story together and we read it contextually, we can find ourselves in different layers of that story with different people who are responding in different ways to this invitation to, be to belong to this kingdom of God. So we're Acts 19 and the title is held in high honor. It comes from a phrase that is towards the end of our passage and it should make everyone looking at the title go, well, what exactly is held in high honor? And it's the name of Jesus that in this non-Jewish world is actually this name because of the people who follow God and belong to God's kingdom, it elevates this name of Jesus and all people recognize it. So that's kind of where we're headed towards the end of our time together. So I would like to start just recognizing or maybe contextualizing for us where we're at last week we were in acts 18 which means physically we were in corinth and in corinth we see that paul's team is growing it's been silas and timothy leading up to corinth but then they get to corinth and find Priscilla and Aquila who are Jews from Rome who are currently living in Corinth and they join Paul's team and then Paul invites them to go with him to Ephesus and then he leaves them in Ephesus while Paul goes to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the Jewish festivals in Jerusalem and then he goes back to Antioch because that's kind of Paul's home base it's where he often goes back to touch his home community and he hangs out there in Antioch for a bit and then he travels overland, or he travels through the area that we would call Turkey, modern day. The Romans called it Asia. So that peninsula, they travel over the peninsula and he goes to Ephesus. So meanwhile, and we read this at the very tail end of chapter 18 last week. Apollos, who is a Jew from Alexandria in Egypt, who has become a believer in Jesus, goes to Ephesus, meets Priscilla and Aquila, who take him under their wings, and they continue to disciple him and educate him. And then they send him off to Corinth, where they were living previously. And he is going to infuse the growing church in Corinth. So, there's a lot happening. And so, if we just kind of take all of this and we kind of pull back from the details and just say what is actually happening, we see this is not a story of one man. This is not a Paul story. Again, this is a kingdom of God story. This is the movement of God. We just happen to focus on Peter and Paul because. Luke is focusing on Peter and Paul, but we see in the crevices all throughout the book of Acts that the gospel message is spreading everywhere. Apollos, case in fact, he's a Jew down in Egypt who has heard of Jesus as Messiah and believes, and we actually get references throughout Acts of several people who are on that northern coastline of Africa who are believers, So this church movement is spreading into Africa. We know that this church movement is in Antioch, and it's going to go north and east into the rest of the Syrian empire. So there's that story also happening. It's just right now we're just following Paul, but it is essential, I think, for our modern church to know this is not a Roman Empire story. Again, this is a kingdom of God story, and it is going south, and it's going east. We just get more details of the story as it goes west. So then we end up, uh, well, I should say, um, thinking about what Luke is doing in this selective storytelling that he's doing And we know we have two volumes. We have the Gospel of Luke where we have seen Jesus who is being motivated and animated through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then volume two in Acts we get, and now this is how this same spirit is being infused into the church and motivating or animating the church. And God's kingdom is now spreading everywhere and going global. So again, it makes me ask this question. What is so attractive about the kingdom of God, especially once it leaves the land that held onto the historic story of what God was doing in his people? What is so attractive about this kingdom that other human kingdoms and people in these human kingdoms want to belong to God's kingdom and not the kingdom or the empires that they know of? This is going to bring us to the beginning of our section here. So Paul is going to come to Ephesus. And again, I'm going to pause because, you know, I'm obsessed with context and with maps. Who's so excited? There's a map in the bulletin. So if you want to go ahead and pull this out, it's stuffed somewhere, hopefully, in your bulletin. Because... We have to do this because when someone says Ephesus, this is actually loaded with massive context that the original audience would have known. And it is really significant to understand what is all tied up in this nice, neat little package, one word, Ephesus. It means something dramatic. So if you look at the map that's at the top of the insert, you will find Ephesus, I mean, it's. I know that the writing is really small, so you know, this is an all-family thing, get the younger eyes sitting next to you to read the words if you need to. Ephesus is right at the western edge of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Ephesus, if we were to zoom in on Ephesus, we would see that it sits right at the edge so that with one hand it holds onto the land and with the other hand it holds onto the Aegean Sea and the water. This means Ephesus is primarily posed to be a hub of trade And at Ephesus, you are at the far western edge of two massively significant trade routes. One is the Silk Road heading all the way over to India, and one is the Arabian space trade route. Space? No. Arabian, uh, the spice. There we go. I was like, space, that doesn't enter the story for several generations later. (laughs) the uh, Arabian spice trade that's coming out of the Arabian Peninsula all of that traveling over land is going to end at Ephesus and then because Ephesus has this mighty harbor it's going to spread through the Aegean and go further west also because of its location there's a really important um, water trade route that is going to connect us down to Alexandria In Egypt and so we get this Egypt Ephesus connection here. Now what does this mean for us except that Ephesus was a super super wealthy city because all these really expensive trade goods came to this hub. Ephesus was um, a city that was kind of built or nestled in these three primary hills It was right on the edge of this river that the citizens of Ephesus dredged out to create a huge massive harbor to connect them to the Aegean Sea. And because of the harbor, right, it just invites international tourists or people from all over the Roman Empire. They are all coming into this harbor. It's like a gravitational pull. And so we get lots and lots of different kinds of people who show up in the city of Ephesus. We know of Ephesus, when we look at them, they have this rich, proud history, which we don't have time to go into, except that it was a really influential Greek city. And when Rome came in and took over, it became a very influential Roman city. It was, at the time of Paul, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. So you know we're talking about, like, something that is very significant, Magic was one of the important trades or skills of the city of Ephesus. In fact, we have magic papyri, so uh, written down formulas and um, like ways of interacting with the spiritual world, and some of those papyri made their way from Ephesus all the way down into Egypt, where we found remains of them in modern day. If you were to be a tourist, coming in, and let's say you come from Alexandria, and you pull into the harbor, and you get out. Your experience of Ephesus, this would be the picture that's in the middle of the page. From the harbor, you would get out, and there would be massive paved roads with columns that soar way above you and make you feel really small, There's going to be statues dispersed throughout those columns. The statues are going to be of Caesar, of course, of the gods that are worshipped throughout the Roman Empire, and of major philanthropic donors to the city. So already, like, by entering the city and walking down the streets, you kind of know what the city is all about. You are going to be aiming straight towards one of the largest theaters of the time and theaters were a place where culture was developed and then disseminated to the people because on the stage in theaters are the stories of the gods. So where do we humans come from? What's the story of the gods? What are our connections to the divine world? All of that is being told on the stages of the theaters. Before you get to the theater over on the right hand side is the agora or the marketplace, big open aired area, people would set up tents, maybe Priscilla and Aquila had some of their tent making stuff in the Agora. In the Agora, we know that it's kind of a religious and political uh, infusion of all things um, where politics and religion are always intertwined in these Roman cities. And then if you just kind of bend around the hill, you're going to find the villas. This is where the wealthy people of Ephesus lived. And listen to this, because I was looking for a home to buy in Philadelphia. And at points I was like, so maybe 800 square feet, I don't know, I might be able to do 900 in the market, which is changing, it's crazy. The villas of Ephesus were four to 7,000 square feet, right? So that's larger than some of your homes. Okay, not only that, many of the villas had floors that were suspended and they would pipe hot air underneath. So they had heated floors, right? Okay, so they were living more comfortably than many of us in modern-day Philadelphia. Isn't that astounding? Like that kind of wealth that would have been there in these villas. And of course, we have to mention the temple to Artemis. Because Artemis and Ephesus were so intertwined that to be loyal to Ephesus was to be loyal to Artemis. Artemis is the mother goddess of the earth. She went by different names throughout different centuries, but was widely worshipped throughout all the area of Asia Minor. For centuries and centuries, she was one of the primary goddesses that all the different towns and civilizations worshipped. But her origin story is interwoven into the origin story of Ephesus so that they are one in the same. And this is going to be massively important for next week's sermon is to remember how important it is to be loyal to Artemis. The temple in Ephesus that was built to Artemis was so astounding that it was on the list of the seven wonders of the world at that time. It was the reason so many tourists went to Ephesus. They went to help celebrate some of the festivals of Artemis. The festivals created the drumbeat, the rhythm, the heart of how the city functioned. So it all revolved around the worship of Artemis. The the actual Temple of Artemis functioned like the bank. It gave land grants. So it was the center focus of all things. And somehow in a city that is going to swallow you with all of its monumental architecture, a city that is going to tell you that it honors power, authority, and wealth, and status, somehow a story of a very humble man who came from this tiny, tiny little village in a faraway place is going to infuse the people of Ephesus and have an effect even on them. How is that possible? That is astounding. Okay, so let's, let's read past verse 2. So we're going to get there, I promise. Okay, so... Paul comes into Ephesus and he meets some disciples. These would be Jewish disciples and at an era where disciples followed teachers and they didn't have copies and books that were signed by all their favorite authors. They followed their teachers and ingested their teaching and learned how to live in their world based on how their teacher lived in the world. And so whose disciples are these? Luke doesn't specify but it seems that they would be John the Baptist's disciples. So this touches on our gospel message from Mark, the part that we read earlier from Mark. We know that John was the one who was sent before Jesus to create a readiness to tell people they needed to repent. In other words, they needed to, to turn their attention from the direction they were going and turn their direction into this way to pay attention and to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been expecting. That's the message of John. And these disciples know that. They know that that John was pointing towards Jesus, but they don't know of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is then going to say, well, let's baptize you not into the teachings of John and the attitude of John, but let's, let's bring you fully into the teachings of who Jesus is. And by being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, it means that they're receiving a baptism to recognize the rejuvenating power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And we see the Holy Spirit immediately showing up and animating them as the Holy Spirit animated the first believers at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then John, or Paul, as is his custom, is going to go into the synagogue for three months, hanging out in the synagogue, weekly discussing. And this is where we get, it's a fast forward through time. And I, I would love to sit in these synagogue meetings to hear the way that they are debating their scriptures. Luke doesn't tell us a whole lot about that, except that he does say a primary theme is kingdom of God. For the Jews, that would mean they're thinking of the time when they were at the base of Mount Sinai and they received the covenant with God. That is the initiation of kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Through King David, through the divided kingdom and the exile, into the trickier bit which was how did Jesus talk about kingdom of God as something that is not quite David's kingdom but something grander and more majestic that's what the debates would have been all about rehearsing and rehearsing their scripture and how they are going to interpret their scriptures and sacred texts and Paul is not necessarily successful He gets kicked out, along with the disciples. Maybe the disciples mentioned a few verses earlier. And so we leave the the area of the synagogue. Up until now, this has been a Jewish story. All the characters in this story are Jewish. Uh, Paul is using very specific kingdom of God language that is very specific to their context that they know of. It's insider knowledge. But now Paul is going public with the message. And for two years, he's going to be standing in the Hall of Tyrannus, which we don't necessarily know exactly where that was, although most people guess it's in that area around the Agora. So this place that is an infusion of politics and religion and economics. And somehow Paul finds a place there. And then everyone in Ephesus for two years, this is the longest we have Paul staying anywhere. And it's here in Ephesus as he's encountering and engaging all these different kinds of people and talking about this kingdom of God and being animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the remarkable thing is news is going to spread. And it says, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. How is that possible And that's when you go back to the map and you go, because Ephesus was a hub of trade. Everyone came into Ephesus and then everyone dispersed. And so by Paul having an impact in Ephesus, he's actually having an impact on the whole rest of Asia. And everyone's going to learn about this kingdom of God. Well, we go on and it, it gets a little bit weird here because we have God working. And it's not Paul doing magical things like things we don't quite understand, like miracles. It is God working through Paul, and God is going to use very normal objects, handkerchiefs, clothing. We've seen this before. This was the same kind of outworking, outflow of power that happened through like the clothing of Jesus or the shadow of Peter when he was in Jerusalem. It's the same kind of power, but it's not Paul's power, it's God's power. Except that, or I should say, isn't that really interesting? It gets a lot of attention from people. But again, Ephesus was a center of magic. And so as God is working, people are going, oh, wait, magic. That's, we're kind of interested in this magic stuff. And like always, when humans see kind of sources of power we like to become power adjacent. And the next story you get are people who are seeing the power of God and the world, including the spiritual world, is responding to God's power and authority. And so now we're going to see seven Jewish exorcists who are like, I wonder if this is a new formula that we can learn, is there a new incantation if I say something to the spiritual world in the name of Jesus, is this something I can manipulate? I can make happen? And the demons look at these exorcists and they're like, no, we, we understand authority and power and we understand the power and authority of Jesus. And we also understand that you have no idea who Jesus is. You have no authority in this right, because it is God's authority and God's power that is the thing that can move and can animate. And so we see, like, we're given this example of Jesus-centric people like Paul and Jesus-adjacent people like these other exorcists. One is people who are so oriented in the direction of Jesus and what God is doing and moving to be transformed closer to what God desires. And the other is saying, I like this bit, and I like this bit, and I like this other portion, but don't ask me to be fully transformed. And then we get to this part in verse 17. It says, when this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks... Everyone was awestruck, or the fear of the Lord infused everyone. And the name of the Lord was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. And for any of you who are kind of like my generation and above, where you went to youth groups that like, created this pull your tapes and CD tapes right and CDs and we're gonna like rip them apart and burn them and it's like this create this social pressure fervor to prove that you're religious somehow right like that's not what this is this is we're seeing a turning now not of Jews which we saw at the beginning part of the chapter but now we're seeing what happens when the Greeks turn and orient themselves towards God and so we're seeing what they do is a very public declaration not of belief but of a way of being right and so now we are dramatically casting off our old lifestyle in order to publicly declare that we are living according to a different set of standards and the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed which is amazing. And we're going to stay in Ephesus next week, too, so we're going to continue the development of this story. But this portion in Acts 19, this is really just the beginning. Ephesus, like we already said, is going to be a place through which the whole rest of Asia is going to be influenced. There's going to be schools of thought that develop in Ephesus. So schools of thought following Paul, later school of thought of people following Peter, and then a school of thought of people following the disciple John. This is going to be a primary hub of Christian dispersion throughout the world, and it starts here in Acts chapter 19. When we look at the book of Revelation, we see that the city of Ephesus is among the seven cities in that area that were very influential or churches in influential cities making a a dramatic impact in how they are trying to figure out how to live out loud what it means to belong to God's kingdom. So we get this story, right, of the Holy Spirit who is motivating Jesus and the Holy Spirit in dramatic ways that is motivating the early Christians. And that Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit infused in our community, Do we have the courage to actually believe that, that this is our story and that God is pretty consistent throughout time and that God is infusing and the Holy Spirit is going to move and motivate his people so that we, in a very missional way, live out loud in our communities what the kingdom of God is really all about? And so in just a moment, we are going to come to the table, right? And I I love this part of our service because this is when we stand and we come forward and we remember this is because of what Jesus did. And it's because the Holy Spirit motivated Jesus. There's a humility and a servanthood in what Jesus did that then is supposed to influence who we are and act as a reminder of who we are so that when we leave and go out the doors, we take that memory with us and that we too ultimately can go out and make an influence on the city of Philadelphia. Will you pray with me? Holy God, there is something remarkable about following your story. Following the way that you persevere, your peop- persevere after your people. A way of looking at your power that doesn't get confined and defined in the way that humans like to constrain and understand and wield power. But yours is something that is a power that is, that is wielded in order to help those who are in need, to stoop down and listen to the cries of the oppressed and to respond. And there is something that is really beautiful about the call of your kingdom and the invitation that you extend to all of us to belong and to participate in your kingdom. And this week, may we listen intently for the movement, the nudgings of the Holy Spirit, that we build your kingdom in the way that you designed. And in Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen.